And what we're going to do in this part is see how the muscles use the energy, how the skeletal muscle use the energy. And I think we mentioned this before a little bit about how the muscles use the energy. But here we're going to see this graph that shows something related to the time. Here is the time, in this case from 0 to 30 minutes of exercise, in this case from 90 to 120 minutes of exercise. And here the different degrees, mild, moderate, and heavy exercise, and in different colors, different nutrients that are utilized in different moments. One of the things that we can see here is this part, which is important to consider. If we exercise from 0 to 30 minutes of mild exercise, mostly what the skeletal muscle is going to use are yellow, which is plasma-free fatty acids. Plasma-free fatty acids. And if we switch to moderate exercise, now fatty acids are not consumed the most. Instead, the muscle glycogen is used the most. And if we go to heavy exercise, even more muscle glycogen is utilized. So this is a relation to from 0 to 30 minutes of exercise, different times, different degrees of exercise. So from here we get a conclusion. If we want to use more fatty acids, we want the skeletal muscle more fatty acids, which come from where? They, they come from fatty acids we get in the diet, but the most important fatty acids that we have in our body stored as triglycerides, and that's fat, adipose tissue. So that's why the recommendation of exercising, if we want to lose weight or maintain our weight, is from zero to 30 minutes, or at least 30 minutes of exercise, mild exercise, three times a week. And if we want to go even further, the recommendations, nutritional guidelines include this recommendation. This guidelines say that if we want to maintain our weight, we should do at least 30 minutes of exercise. But if we want to lose weight, the guidelines said increase that time to 45 minutes or one hour of exercise three times a week, but mild exercise, which is walking, which is jogging, but not running to the maximum. And doing that, we guarantee that we are burning fat, what we commonly say. What we're doing is using fatty acids that are broken down from the molecules of triglycerides that we have in the adipose tissue. Now, if we go um, in the time, I mean in the in intensity of the exercise to moderate or heavy, we're not consuming much fatty acids at this, at this point. So that's not what is recommended if we want to maintain um, weight or lose weight. That's one of the things that, that we get from the physiology of uh, how the muscles use the energy. And we mentioned before when we did metabolism um, and consumption of, of ATPs that along the time, and I think we're going to mention this afterwards, uh, the longer that we exercise, and if the exercise is mild, we will consume more fatty acids, and that's aerobic exercise, aerobic metabolism.
Now when the skeletal muscle starts contracting initially, for the first one or two minutes, it's basically consuming ATPs that come from anaerobic respiration or anaerobic metabolism. All the ATPs are, are stored in the muscle first, and then more ATPs are made by anaerobic pathways. And in the meantime, what happens is cardiovascular system and respiratory system will start functioning more and will get more oxygen, more oxygen to uh, the blood in preparation for the switching moment, the moment that we switch from anaerobic to aerobic metabolism. Because after two minutes, if we continue exercising, and if it's a moderate exercise or mild exercise, aerobic respiration will start and I will give, provide lots of ATPs for, for the skeletal muscle uh, work. And those ATPs are mostly made by metabolism of fatty acids. If we continue exercising, like for exercising, like for 30 minutes at least. So it sounds very simple, but it's not so simple when we want to try because exercising in that way implies to be constant and uh, choose a type of exercise and do it until it becomes something regular and a habit. And it, actually, it's not, it's not like you have to exercise a lot or it's sweating or exhausted all the time that you, that you do something. It's just mild exercise. So long as we are healthy in other parts of our body and in other systems, that's an, it's not a big challenge. But there are other things in relation to the consumption of energy and metabolism of the muscle, uh, like how these cells will utilize the oxygen. And this definition is called maximal oxygen uptake, also known as aerobic capacity, or maximum rate of oxygen consumption. This determines if some exercise may be considered mild, moderate or heavy for a specific person. And it depends on the amount of oxygen that the person can use and take. And it's not only about the muscles, it's also about the lungs and the heart. Age of the person, the sex, the size, fitness, athletic training will change and will be different in different people. It's greater for males and younger people it's actually a range that goes from 12 milliliters of oxygen per minute per kilogram of body weight up to 84. This is the thing that changes when we start training. And you probably notice this when you start exercising. Like imagine you haven't been exercising for like five years, do nothing, and start exercising. You are so exhausted after the first session, especially after doing treadmill, let's say, for 15 minutes. And you're so exhausted, you cannot go further. But then you start training. Do it, and do it, and do it, and do it, and do it. And after four weeks, approximately, if you keep the, the routine, then it will, be not, will be not be that hard for you. And you start increasing the time, increasing the speed, the effort.
And then after three months, the 15 minutes of exercise that were exhausting for you, there's nothing now. Because this has changed. Training increases this oxygen uptake by 20% approximately. But that happens uh, in the course of time. It happens in at least four to six weeks of constant training. Well, that's again another factor that tells you that exercise is about constancy. If you are not constant about doing this, and then it won't change. And every time you go to the gym and try a routine, it will be exhausting, and you'll give up easily. Yes. Yes, the level of oxygen of the air it also, it's also a factor. In high altitude places, uh, there's less pressure of oxygen, and uh, the oxygen is not available in the same way than at sea level, and that's another factor. But if you train in high altitudes, then your body will adjust. But that takes longer. That takes like at least Three, three weeks just for your red blood cells to adapt. And what happens is you start releasing more red blood cells so they can get more oxygen uh, for you. Uh, when they go to high altitudes, it's always, uh, we hear something. They say, well, the athletes, if they have a competition or a game or something, there are two ways. So they play the same day they arrive or they stay there for at least two weeks and get adapted and then perform their whatever competition is. Because as soon as they get there, they are athletic, they are trained, and they can challenge their bodies, and they can perform not 100%, but mostly very well. Although they will, they will end exhausted. But if they do it the next day, the next day the body is challenged. The body is challenged, they won't perform easily. Yeah, but that's an important factor, the, 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 the altitude. Other thing is called lactate threshold or anaerobic threshold. This is the moment at which our metabolism will go, will switch, will switch back to anaerobic metabolism. How this happens? Well, there's a maximal oxy oxygen uptake. There's a maximum that you reach. But then what happens after that? you keep exercising, what happens if you keep challenging your body? You're not able to get more oxygen for your muscles. So you're going to switch to anaerobic again. Start burning glucose, glycolysis, to make more ATPs because the oxygen that you're giving is not enough for that work that you're performing. And that's another thing that we measure. It happens about 50-70% of the maximum oxygen uptake, this starts switching into anaerobic. Um, and we can see also differences here, depending on the age and the state of training. Um, here we have a comparison of two people, at one and two, the one in red and the two is blue. The one in red is switching at 70%, and the one in blue is switching at 60%. And it starts, at this point is the maximum oxygen capacity. That's another thing that changes with the training. Um, that's what I was describing maybe before. Exercise, you get exhausted, and and after all, your muscles are very sore because you get fatigued. 
it's increased the levels of lactic acid, and um, you can have cramps, contractures. And of course, if you're not trained, this happens much earlier, uh, much sooner than if you are trained. Oxygen depth. This concept means that when we exercise, after we exercise, we end up with the depth of oxygen. We have consumed a lot of energy, consumed a lot of ATPs, and using oxygen. And where is the oxygen coming from? Red blood cells from the blood, they contain this protein called hemoglobin, which transports oxygen. Myoglobin is another protein that binds oxygen and is found inside the skeletal muscle cell. So after we exercise, we have used lots of oxygen containing the hemoglobin and the myoglobin, which is inside our muscle cells. So we need to refill those uh, molecules of oxygen or those proteins. And that's why we keep breathing. The breathing rate keeps being elevated after we exercise. You stop exercising, you see increase your, you cannot stop breathing as soon as you stop exercising. And it takes some, like one minute, two minutes, until your breathing rate gets back to a normal range. So during that time, you, get, you need more oxygen to refill or your hemoglobin and myoglobin um, uh, of the muscle cells. Phosphocreatine. Phosphocreatine is a compound that is found inside the skeletal muscle fiber. Phosphocreatine. Phospho that means phosphate. ATPs. ATPs are stored in this molecule of phosphocreatine. So we need ATP quickly, like a sudden exercise, or as soon as we start exercising, the ATPs that the muscle use are ATPs from phosphocreatine. And the ATPs containing this molecule of phosphocreatine, they are released, utilized, but then phosphocreatine is recycled and binding more phosphate to transfer to the molecule of ATP, and that's why it's considered storage form. Phosphocreatine has a, a core of creatine. Creatine is made by the liver and, and the kidneys, or maybe obtained in the diet. This is a commercial product of creatine that is uh, used in uh, uh, muscular uh, exercise or different. Sometimes people consume this in order to increase their um, their efficiency and the muscular contraction. The creatine is not going to help to build muscle. The creatine is going to help to uh, improve the work of the muscle, especially when we need to do exercises like lifting weights. If you are a weightlifter, you need a lot of phosphocreatine because how long it takes for, the, for this? Like 30 seconds? You have to up your body and then drop it. So for that type of exercise, phosphocreatine is uh, ideal. The creatine supplements are ideal. But it's not 
good for long-term exercise. So creatine supplements will not help to improve the efficiency if you are, if you run like uh, five miles or ten miles, it won't make a difference. That's a chemical reaction that involves phosphocreatine. It's phosphocreatine because it contains a phosphate that is transferred to the molecule of ADP turning into ATP, which is used for muscular compartment. That phosphate then is obtained again here, and creatine turns into phosphocreatine. And it's always present inside the muscle fiber. Whenever we need ATPs quick, and then uh, we get it from the phosphocreatine. And that's the way we start any muscular contraction. The ATPs from phosphocreatine. In time, after phosphocreatine is utilized, and we need more ATPs, we get it from anaerobic metabolism for the first two minutes. And then we start using aerobic uh, metabolism. Get ATPs from glycogen, but mostly from fatty acids. And if we keep exercising, heavy exercise, that means that we're reaching our lactate threshold in aerobic, so meaning that we use more glucose. And that's why, if we go back to the first graph, that's why you see that in moderate and heavy exercise, there's more glycogen used, because we're breaking down more glucose, or glycolysis or anaerobic, so we're switching to heavy exercise and reaching our lactic threshold control. Questions to this point? So what do we do if we want to grow muscle? Steroids? <laughs> Easy way. Steroids help, but they are not so advisable because they have many complications. Although people use them, but that's not the optimal way. First, we have to understand genetics. Uh, every person is different. So you're not going to uh, go to the gym uh, with the goal to grow muscles as Arnold Schwarzenegger because your genetics are different. Yeah, you will grow muscle, but according to your genetics. And there will be a maximum size that your muscle will get. And second, what you have to do mostly is to work out your muscles selectively and forcing them to perform isotonic contractions, eccentric isotonic contractions mostly, increase your, your intake of amino acids, especially after you work out, and wait. Six months, nine months, you see some change. One year, there'll be more changes. But if you want in one month or three months, then steroids is what people do. That's not, that's not what, what's going to happen. And that depends on the type of muscle fibers that we have. We have different types of muscle fibers. If we grab a skeletal muscle and we analyze the single, skeletal, single fibers, they, are, they have different types. And this is what we describe here. 
the fibers are classified in slow twitch and fast twitch. Slow twitch are called type 1 because they are the ones that uh, are used when uh, slow contractions are performed or sustained contraction for long periods of time. And microscopically, we see a better blood supply, more capillary blood vessels around. Inside the cells, there are more mitochondria, there's more myoglobin. Makes sense. So it's more aerobic, more oxygen to sustain the contraction for a long period of time. Um, and they also name high oxidative capacity or slow oxidative fibers, high myoglobin con uh, content, especially in postural muscles. Muscles are contracted for a long time. Like when we are standing, when you're standing for three hours, you have muscles contracted for the three hours. So those muscles, especially in the legs, quadriceps muscles, hamstrings, they have high uh, or slow um, twitch or high oxidative uh, type of fiber. And the fast fibers, type two, they fatigue fast. They have less myoglobin, also called white fibers. Why? Because under the microscope, if we do some staining techniques, you will see this. This is a cross-section of skeletal muscle fibers. Some of them are darker, some of them are lighter. There's a reason why they are called white. And that is basically the amount of myoglobin they have. The dark fibers, red fibers, they have more myoglobin. The white fibers have less myoglobin. And these fibers have more glycogen stores makes sense because they need more glucose for glycolysis and aerobic. <coughs> That's why it's fast twitch. Muscles that, very strong muscles, like when we're lifting weights, muscle of the back, for instance, muscle of the shoulder, pectorals, pectorals major, minor, and very small muscles also, like muscles of the eyeball, when they contract very quick and suddenly, they have mostly uh, fast type 2 fibers. And there's an intermediate type, a fast twitch, but with high oxidative capacity, also called fast oxidative fibers. This intermediate, this intermediate may, uh, may be like the transition between these two types of muscles. Uh, but one fact that is uh, important to remember is that we can change this. First, genetics again. Some people are better for like long races, long running. Some people are better for lifting weights, being extreme in the type of sport. But we can change that with training again. I mean, that doesn't mean that we're gonna grow more cells that means that we're going to adapt the cells that we have in context of myoglobin or, or, or blood supply. But again, genetics is important to determine the, the maximal efficiency. Muscular fatigue is another thing that we see when we um, exercise. It may be expressed as a sustained muscular contraction. That happens when we exercise, but sometimes we have a contracture, 
uh, cramp, our muscles get sore. Um, and it's due to many things, not only one thing. We, uh, we commonly uh, say that it's because of lactic acid accumulation in the muscle cell, in part. Because the lactic acid, the lactic acid, it's recycled, is it reused? There is, I think we mentioned at the very beginning, the core cycle by which this lactic acid that is made by anaerobic uh, metabolism in the cells can, uh, goes to the blood and it's gotten by the liver cell. And the liver cell can transform this lactic acid back into glucose. But of course, if there's an excessive lactic acid production, then the excess cannot be taken by the liver efficiently, and it's one of the reasons of the muscular fatigue, because it lowers the pH, and that changes everything. But there is accumulation of extracellular potassium that will reduce the membrane potential, it will make the membrane less able to depolarize, or depletion of stored glycogen. And the calcium from the sarcoplasmic reticulum or the muscle fiber is consumed or declined in ATPs. And all these things need a recovery time. That's why it's advisable after you exercise, if you are keeping a routine, uh, the, commonly, uh, the common guidelines tells you, okay, you exercise today, but then you rest tomorrow and then come back in two days. So you keep going until you find your optimal time or routine, because everyone has a different routine. Usual is every other day, if you adapt quite well, although you can do it every day, but especially at the beginning when you are subject to a lot of fatigue, muscular fatigue, you should give time for yourselves to recover. And it is at this point that we find the explanation for muscle growth because growth because along with these problems of muscular fatigue what we see is muscle fiber damage some muscle fibers are damaged which is damaged because um, the exercise especially lifting weights or working with machines will challenge your muscle to the point or overstretching and some muscles will rip. Some muscle fibers. Microscopic damage. And that needs time for recovery. Muscle fibers have to regrow. Muscle fiber is able to grow thanks to stem cells that are in between the skeletal muscle fibers. But that needs additional supply of nutrients like amino acids so the muscle can start growing, the cells will start growing. And what happens is basically there is not increase of mass, muscle cells, there is more growth in size of each individual muscle fibers. There's more myofilaments made inside so the contractions will, will be stronger and therefore the muscle will look bigger. It's a little bit of hyperplasia, but it's more hypertrophy. Yeah. Would the proteins that are being degraded or the muscle fibers during this time, would they be like be used also like as sources of amino acids building muscle cells? Yeah. Everything is retaken to the pool of amino acids. 
and uh, your metabolism will change. That's another thing that we commonly say. The metabolism changes when you exercise. That includes that the body is using more amino acids, more amino acids for growing more muscle or more filaments inside the muscle fibers. And all these five amino acids that come from the proteins that have been damaged, all of them are reused. And if your body detects, your muscle detects that you are exercising, you continue challenging your muscle, then your muscle will start getting more myofilaments. And that's why we need more supplements of amino acids at that point. And in the other way around, I mean, before, if you get more muscle, I mean, more myofilaments that will contract more, that needs more calcium, that needs more ATPs, and therefore your consumption of energy will change. Your basal metabolic rate from 2,000 calories will get up to five or 6,000 calories. And uh, that's what you see people that can eat like two or three hamburgers a day and they don't gain weight because the exercise they make, it's a lot. They consume a lot of energy and they have a lot of muscle and they don't gain weight. It's not healthy, of course, but in terms of energy, they won't gain weight. And the other part is if you eat a hamburger a week and you don't do any exercise, well, you will gain weight after a couple of months. So when we exercise for endurance training, these are the things that happen. Fatty acids are optimized. The usage of fatty acids is optimized. Triglyceride storage is used. Your lactate threshold will be increased, meaning they won't get exhausted. You are able to exercise for longer. You will use more fatty acids, less glycogen, less chance for muscular fatigue, of course. Number of mitochondria will increase in your muscle fibers. And your type 2A, which is the intermediate type, will switch into more oxidative type, slow oxidative, meaning more mitochondria, more blood supply um, because of endurance um, exercise training. This takes time. This takes time. So at least six months, nine months, and your body will start changing in this. Now let's see how the neurons, how the nervous system con uh, uh, controls uh, the skeletal muscles. First, let's start with the, some concepts that we checked in the nervous system. Lower motor neurons or motor neurons or motor neurons, they are located in the ventral horn of the spinal cord and in the brain stem if it's for the brain. Here in the graph we see this, these cells, these neurons in the anterior horn, ventral horn of the spinal cord. These are called the lower motor neurons that control the muscles of the body, all the skeletal muscles. And each of those neurons will send an axon that will connect to one or more muscle fibers. When the neurons get into the muscle, 
we see this to the detail, there are some other things to consider, like the muscle has different types of fibers, but basically two types that we have to describe, extrafusal and intrafusal fibers. There are receptors inside the muscle called the muscle spindle, which are going to detect the muscle length, the level of stretching of a muscle, the degree of a stretching of a muscle. And since the muscles are connected to tendons and the tendons to bones, there are other receptors in the tendons called Golgi tendon organs are going to detect the stretching of a tendon. So it's not only that the motor neurons connect to the muscle and the muscle contracts. The muscle contains also sensory receptors that will send information to the nervous system about the degree of a stretching and the level of contraction and the length that the muscle has. This is a graph of um, a muscle connected to a tendon and the tendon to a bone. And inside the muscle, we see a small square that has been amplified here with the details on how this thing works. First, there are two things, extrafusal fibers and intrafusal fibers. The extrafusal are the red, typical, skeletal muscle fibers. These are the ones that contract. But there are other fibers called interfusal fibers, which are inside this special organ or receptor organ called the muscle spindle. Here in gray, we see two layers or sheaths of connective tissue. And inside this muscle spindle, we recognize a different type of muscular fiber. These are called interfusal fibers. Well, there are two types, nuclear chain and nuclear back fibers, but notice one thing, that these two nerves, terminals, are showing an arrow that goes in this direction, meaning that they are sensory fibers. These sensory fibers are wrapping these intrafusal fibers of the muscle skin. They are going to detect the degree of contraction stretching and send the information to the nervous system. Now, going lower in the graph, we see two more terminals here, nerve fibers, but in this case, these are axons. Two types, gamma fibers and alpha fibers. The alpha fibers are going to connect to the extrafusal fibers, muscular fibers. And the gamma fibers, if you follow them, they are going to connect to the intrafusal muscle fiber. So how this works? If we contract a muscle, like muscle of the quadriceps or muscle of the leg, well, the order will come through these two types of fibers. These two are coming from motor neurons. Some of them will order the extrafusal to contract, but some others will order the intrafusal to contract. And that level of contraction will be detected by these sensory fibers. 
which send information to the nervous system. And that's how we are able to know and feel that we are contracting our muscle. If you contract your muscle, you can feel the contraction. That's the sensory information that is coming from the muscle spindle. And most of these things are just unconscious. The muscle will react completely involuntary, parts of reflex, um, but we are able to feel the degree of contraction and the length of the muscle. This is a description of the different types of fibers and the type of sensory cells that wrap all these interfusal fibers, which are the fibers, muscle fibers, inside the muscle spindle apparatus. Alpha and gamma fibers, they belong to alpha and gamma motor neurons or lower motor neurons from the spinal cord. The alpha innervate the muscle fibers, the contracting muscle fibers, and the gamma fibers or motor neurons, they innervate the interfusal fibers. When they contract, they increase sensitivity to the stretch. And that controls the degree of stretching, the contraction, especially for posture. If we are standing, all this thing is happening. Muscle spinders are sending information about the length, the degree of stretching or contraction, and we can regulate how many uh, extra fusel fibers we contract to keep a determined position. Now, regarding the reflexes, or so the response to reflexes, the skeletal muscle fibers are involved in all the uh, reflex arc loops. Um, they are voluntary. They are voluntary. They are also controlled by descending motor pathways. And we have seen this in the lab on reflexes where we control, uh, we uh, observed how we can consciously uh, influence the contraction during the reflex. But the typical example of a reflex is the monosynaptic stretch reflex, called monosynaptic because there's only one synapse involved. Sensory neuron connects to a motor neuron in the spinal cord. Very simple. Of course, there is no involvement of anything else. It's a quick reflex loop. And it's called a stretch reflex. Because all these sensory fibers are getting into the spinal cord and reacting with contraction. This happens all the time in the muscle. We can stimulate this, striking the patellar tendon in the patellar reflex or knee jerk reflex. And we have seen this. But in this example of graph, what you see is the reaction the reaction that happens. In green, you see the sensory neuron arriving to the spinal cord and connecting straight to a motor neuron, monosynaptic. And the order comes through the ventral root, the nerve, and to the extrafusal uh, muscle fibers. And the muscle contracts. 
So what we do when we hit the tendon, when we hit the tendon here, we are actually stretching the muscle. You are hitting the tendon and you are stretching this, pulling this tendon down. And that stretching will be detected by the muscle spindle, which sends a signal, a sensor signal. Golgi tendon organs are organs located or receptors located in the tendon, in the tendon that are controlling the or detecting the degree of tension that the tendons will have. And in the same, in the same way, it will inform the nervous system of the degree of tension that a tendon may have. And it's an additional input of information that the muscle needs for contracting. In this case, it's not monosynaptic, it's disynaptic because you see the involvement of a yellow neuron in between the interneuron. Since an interneuron is involved, the reaction may be an inhibition of the contraction. The tendon is too stretched and the muscle will stop contracting. It's like a protection mechanism. Now, if we analyze the knee-jerk reflex or patella reflex that we elicit during the patella reflex maneuver, it's monosynaptic, but there are some connections of this sensory neuron. You see, one connection is going straight to the motor neuron. But there are other terminal fibers that will connect to motor neurons, I mean, to interneurons. And with the purpose of sending an inhibitory fiber to the antagonistic muscle. Because in the reflex, if the quadriceps, which is anterior, contracts, that means that the hamstrings have to relax, otherwise the movement will not happen. Remember in uh, muscles, whenever a muscle contracts, another muscle has to relax, especially in the upper and lower limb. An antagonistic muscle has to work in the opposite way. And that's what happens with the reflex. In reality, the more, there are two motor neurons involved. One motor neuron that will make the quadriceps contract, but another motor neuron will send an order to relax the hamstrings. And there are even more complex reflexes that involve the contralateral limb. When muscles in the left side contract, muscles in the right side have to relax. And that is seen in this special reflex called crossed extensor reflex, where if the signal is here, the stimulus here, like when you step on male or sharp object, the natural reaction is to withdraw the fruit from this stimulus. So this sends the signal through the green fiber to the sensor neuron, and at arriving to the spinal cord, it will connect to first 
one motor neuron, which is a positive, will stimulate the flexor to contract, so you can withdraw the, the, uh, the food. There's another connection that inhibits the extensor muscle of that side, so you can do this, flexion, and withdraw the food from the stimulus. But since we need to keep standing and keep the balance, something has to happen with the other, with the contralateral limb. We flex this, the other side has to be extended. And that's why there's another connection here that crosses the midline and goes to the other side of the spinal cord. And it connects to two motor neurons that are going to stimulate different reactions. Stimulate extensor and inhibits the flexor. And that's what happens when you step on, on a nail or something sharp. You flex this lower limb. But what about your other limb? It's extended. You won't flex both, you will fall. That's called the crossed extensor reflex. In the lab, there is a, a, an experiment for this, cross tensor reflex, that you can elicit uh, in the upper limbs, but it's not so evident when we try it. The stimulus has to be painful first, and the person has not to be alerted about this because still conscious control, voluntary control. You can see this in, a, in some fight techniques or like martial arts. If you see some clips of this, there's one of the maneuvers when, the, uh, when you twist the upper limb of the, of the rival like this, you're extending this upper limb, and you will see that that person involuntarily will make this. See some clips later, see some fights, some make this, the person will do this. It's cross extensive, same thing. But again, it has to be painful. It has to be painful and the person that's not supposed to know about this, otherwise will control it voluntarily. Now all this brings to another concept of paralysis. When there is paralysis of uh, upper or lower limb. If the paralysis is because of neural, neural damage, nervous damage or neuronal damage, if the damage is in the lower motor neurons or in the spinal nerve, which is the same because the spinal nerve brings the axons of the motor neurons, there will be flaccid paralysis, which means muscular tone is reduced, stretch reflex is depressed or absent, and there's atrophy of the muscle. But if the damage is to the upper motor neuron, which is in the brain cortex, in the cerebral cortex, or in the descending tracts of the spinal cord, which is the same because they are the axles coming from the upper motor neuron, the paralysis will be spastic, which means rigid. The muscular tone will be increased. Stretch reflexes will be exaggerated. And there will be hyperactivity. And there's an explanation for this. If the upper motor neuron is damaged, the lower motor neuron is still okay. It is working. 
if the upper motor neuron is disconnected from the motor lower motor neuron, the upper motor neuron controls the lower one. The lower has no control now, no regulation. That's why it's rigid, it's spastic, the muscular tone is increased, and there's hyperactivity. You see sometimes muscular twitching. We normally regulate the lower motor neuron from the upper motor neuron, and these are voluntarily controlled. And if there's no connection there, then we see um, these problems. Now, if the damage, damage is in the lower motor neuron, that muscle has no connection at all. So the muscle will not move at all. You, you try to reflex, the nerve of the motor neuron is damaged, so the loop is it's blocked. There will be no response. There will be no reflex here, or depressed reflex. There will be atrophy because the neuron connection will actually keep the muscle working and metabolically active. And one simple maneuver can tell you if it's damage to the lower motor neuron and upper motor or upper motor neuron. Just try the reflex. If someone has with a paralysis, you try the reflex. You find the reflex and it's exaggerated, probably it's an upper motor neuron damage. You don't find reflex, it's a lower motor neuron damage. Finally, some words about cardiac and smooth muscle. We know those two are involuntary. Both are regulated by the autonomic nervous system. But the common thing is that the contraction is based on myosin-actin interaction. That's common for all types of muscles. And the calcium is needed for that. Now the arrangement of the filaments is different. In cardiac and skeletal muscle, that's pretty much the same. But smooth muscle arrangement of the filaments is, is different. Cardiac muscle is a striated muscle. We see that under the microscope very easily. There's myosin, actin, sarcomeres, th same things that we see in the skeletal muscle. There's a sliding of filaments, actin, myosin, troponin, tropomyosin, all is pretty much the same. Difference is cardiac fibers are short. They're branched and they have gap junctions that connect each cell to another. We can see this under the microscope as intercalated discs. But this gap junction is considered an electrical synapsis. We go back to the nervous system, we describe two types of synapses, electric synapses and chemical synapses. This is considered an electrical synapse. And that's how we see intercalated discs under the microscope. In reality, they are the gap junctions that connect one cell to another. And the myocardium is all that group of cardiac cells that we find in the heart. All of them are connected by gap junctions, and each individual cell is connected to each other with of via gap junctions. And that is an important thing because if an action potential or 
depolarization happens in one cell, any cell, that cell will stimulate all cells in the myocard because everything is connected by gap junctions. One action potential happens in one cell and all the cells will get depolarized. It functions as one functional unit. But not all heart, all the heart. The heart has four chambers, we're gonna see that later, which can be divided like this. Two atria and two ventricles. But there's this line that I draw here. This line represents a, a, a connective tissue because actually the myocardium and the atria it's not connected via gap junctions to the myocardium or the ventricles. There is connection, but not like atria to atria. It's a different type of connection. So that's what we consider the myocardium of the atria different in connection to the myocardium of the ventricle. There is connection, but the connection is not like atria to atria with gap junction. It's different and that depends on the electrical conduction system of the heart. And that, it's an explanation of many things that may happen in the heart. Now one feature of the cardiac muscle is that muscle cardiac, uh, the cardiac muscle fibers are able to make their own action potentials automatically without any type of connection with the nervous system. But themselves, they create their own action potential. But especially some of these cells are specialized and they are named as the electrical conduction system of the heart. In some places, they are more concentrated and they are called the pacemaker of the heart. This pacemaker of the heart or electrical conduction system is, is shown here, the sinoatrial node, the atrioventricular node, and all this blue fiber are specialized myocardials, myocardiac cells. They are not nervous cells, they are myocardial cells. Now, the heart is completely disconnected from the nervous system? No, it is connected to the nervous system. It is regulated and influenced by autonomic nervous system. Sympathetic, parasympathetic. Still regulate the function of the heart. There's this experiment this experiment that we do in physiology, sometimes we take, uh, although it's uh, not commonly done, it was done time ago, they get a frog and they remove the heart of the frog while still alive, and the heart, put it on the table, still contracts, completely disconnected from the body. And you cut the heart in two pieces, and each piece keeps contracting. And you cut the heart in four pieces, each piece keeps contracting. How many pieces, no matter how many pieces you cut it into, each single piece will keep contracting. Of course, as long as there's ATP available, calcium available, after some minutes, all the cells will die and, um, and no more contraction. Uh, but it's one of the ways that uh, uh, proves that the heart 
cells are able to make their own action potentials and contract by themselves. Yeah. Yeah. What happens in resuscitation maneuvers is, for different reasons, this organized, sequential, depolarizing, or depolarization that happens, HF first, ventricles after, that determine the pumping and contraction of the heart, rhythmic contraction. For different conditions, this gets completely disorganized. Like there is a infarction in some part, and the electricity is not flowing properly. And we have different types of rhythms, like ventricular fibrillation, one of them. And that's when we use the defibrillator. The defibrillator, the, the point is to reset the heart. It's like giving the heart a fresh start. It's like turning off and turning on the computer. Um, and establish a direction in the flow of electricity or action potentials. And depending on the condition, we may be able to retrieve a normal cycle, a normal electrical cycle, and be successful. But that's n not always happen. You know, sometimes depending on the condition, if it's a massive infarction, no matter how many times you defibrillate, it won't respond. Yeah, I mean, it's unpredictable. The response is unpredictable. That's why the protocol always follows with, first, you know, the, the CPR maneuvers, chest compression and everything to guarantee that the blood is circulated to the brain. But then with defibrillator, we try to resuscitate the heart so the heart by itself will start pumping. But if it's not possible, then there's a fine line there, depending on what condition it is, depending on the age of the patient, it depends on the, what we expect or might expect, and then we keep trying. We keep trying and we can turn, keep trying for 20, 30 minutes. Depending on if, of course, if we know that the brain is receiving good oxygenation or not. And sometimes we resuscitate the, the patient, but it's brain dead. And other times, recovery. That's, that's, that's a fine line, as I said. It's sometimes it's not uh, written in the protocol that you should try the maneuver or defibrillate for 20 times or 10 times or for 30 minutes. It depends on the judgment of the, um, of the physicians that are treating this. And finally, smooth muscle. There's no striations here, but the principle is the same, actin and myosin. The arrangement of these fibers is different, and that's why there's no striations seen. See, thick filaments and thin filaments still, but they are like, like a network around the, skeleton, around the smooth muscle fibers. If you go to the molecular level, you still see actin and myosin, heads of the myosin interacting with the actin, thin filaments, 
But the arrangement of these five of these filaments is different uh, in the smooth muscle fiber. And when it contracts, it won't contract like just in one axis. If it's a network, it will make it contract in a different way. It's like if you imagine the contraction of the smooth muscle, like what you, when you see a worm moving, it's basically very similar. When a worm, uh, an earthworm, you see sometimes in the, in the gardens, uh, how it contracts, and it gets longer, it gets thicker, it gets, that's a little bit of how the smooth muscle contracts. But it's the same principle, actin, myosin, ATPs, calcium, is just the arrangement is different. Then innervation is also different. It's basically autonomic nervous system. These cells, smooth muscle, they are not able to create their own action potential. Only cardiac muscle fibers are able to create their own action potentials. Questions, comments? <laughs>